Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Today, we are blessed and honored to have one of the true great travelers in the history of the world, Francis Lee Bailey Jr., joining us today. Lee, how are you today? Um, I'm feeling wonderful. I'm looking forward to turning 86 in June because there are many that said I wouldn't live this long, having irritated so many prosecutors in my life. <laughs> no doubt. First of all, Lee, when did you start getting called F. Lee Bailey? Uh, the day I went to the bank to open an account at 16, the banker said, what's your name? I said, Lee Bailey. He said, that's not enough. So my mother said, make it F. But I call him Lee because he's a junior, and I want his father to know when I'm talking to one or the other and make no mistake. So the father's frank, he will be F. Lee. And from that day forward, I'm F. Lee. You're F. Lee. Tell us about where you grew up, your background, and how you got to be a lawyer. I grew up in Waltham, Massachusetts. Nothing remarkable. I went to some private schools because my mother was in the business and connections were a substitute for tuition. Uh, I was going to Harvard at too early an age when I found the draft board looking hard at me. My grades were not exemplary, so I ran off and hid in naval flight training so they couldn't draft me. And as a result of that, I went to the Marine Corps, and they said one day, we're short of lawyers. You are one. Here's a book. Go read it. Tell us about being a naval aviator. Um, it is a good way to awaken any callow youth that has a trace of cockiness or other objectionable qualities because you get real very quickly. You suddenly learn that in the military, the mission is not safety. That's strictly secondary. The mission is the mission, and if you come back, we'll send you out again. And if you don't, we'll remember you at least for a short time. How did that help you with your career as a lawyer? Was discipline, what type of things in the military helped? Mold? I think being a single engine fighter pilot helps a whole lot because you very quickly realize that if there is a problem, any trouble of any kind, with the airplane, the weather, or the situation, you are all alone. You cannot tap Big Brother or anyone else for advice. And that is very much a lot of the trial lawyer cross-examining a tough witness. He cannot lean over and say to his colleague, what should I do next? So eventually when you got out of service, did you go back and attend law school? Um, I went back to Harvard because law schools wanted a degree. I finally got the degree waived because of a lot of military legal experience. And so I enrolled in law school in the first year I attended a few classes. And after that, I have the absentee record for the law school. Eventually, you got into the practice of law. What did you do when you started out? Well, I wanted to be a tort lawyer. And uh, How did you know that? How did you, what, what year was that you became? 1960, I was admitted to the bar. In November 1961, I was shanghaied into a capital murder case where the defense lawyer had a heart attack 
in open court and was about to examine a witness about whom very few lawyers in the country had any expertise. And so they found me looking for tort cases over in Boston, Mass., and brought me into the courtroom and said, you've got to cross-examine this guy. So I did, won the case, and after that, nobody brought me any tort business. So I guess one of your first most notable cases, Sam Shepard, made it into the movie The Fugitive. Tell us your involvement in that and what happened. It was because, again, with an expertise in the polygraph, known publicly as the lie detector, that the Shepard family sought me out at the school where I was teaching in Chicago to see if I could uh, supervise a fair polygraph test. They were going to try to run one to convince the governor to give clemency to Sam, who had already been in jail for six years on a life sentence. And what happened? The state of Ohio said, we want nothing to do with lie detector tests. Indeed, a detective said to me, Mr. Bailey, if Sam Shepard is innocent, I don't want to know it. And I got a little bit upset by that, so I filed a federal habeas corpus and kicked Ohio all over the country until I let him out. Wow. And did you get a lot of notoriety as a result of that case? I did, but it happened to dovetail with two other cases. Brian, That's where I was, the, was at the Boston Strangler? The Boston Strangler and the then biggest robbery in the history of the country, the great Plymouth mail robbery. All of these happened in the early 60s, and they were interfaced in the headlines together. Well, tell me about Albert DeSalvo, the Boston Strangler. How did you get involved in that, and what was that like? Well, Albert DeSalvo wasn't interested in lie detecting. He was interested in writing a book about his life and wanted to hire me to enable him to write the book without having it used against him to put him in the electric chair, which was kind of a tricky little thing to pull off. The cops didn't have enough on Albert even to arrest him for the strangling crimes, but I suspect that if he'd written a book admitting to all of them, they might have viewed that as an admission. So what, did you go to trial on the case? No, I made a deal. I had a guardian appointed after Albert was declared incompetent. Had Albert describe all the bad things he'd done without any warnings of any kind. And it was agreed with the attorney general that absent some monumental change, the attorney general could make any use of, he wanted, of Albert's statements except to prosecute Albert DeSalvo. So Albert, what did he then get an insanity defense? Well, he never went to trial as the strangler. He got a defense for other crimes of insanity, which did not sell. And he went to prison and he was killed in prison by an inmate for selling um, dope under the market price. Wow. So what the the third case in the in the three? What was the third case you mentioned? The biggest bank robbery ever, or greatest robbery? Biggest armed robbery. Uh, a postal truck with one million five hundred fifty-seven thousand dollars was proceeding up Route Three from Cape Cod to Boston to bring the money to the Federal Reserve or wherever, 
and some guys dressed as cops pulled it over, uh, pretended to arrest the driver, and unloaded the money into a van and tied up the drivers. And uh, no, they took them with them and tied them up later on and escaped with the money. The case has never been solved. Indeed, Canadian television is about to release a special on it within a few months. Wow. So then you go on, did you ever get into any tort cases? Oh, yes. I had a tort case, Brian, for which you and each of your colleagues would have walked across the United States to Wisconsin on your knees over a broken glass. It was a fractured bone stem in a class president beauty queen perpetrated by a Mack truck owned by Northwestern Van Lines and driven by a drunk driver who fled the scene and had a record for drunk driving when he was hired. So that's about all the goodies you can have in one case. It finally settled for 38 million. As I have said many times. What year was that? Um, 1986 so that, or seven. That's probably equivalent of $100 million today. Um, it was a lot of money, and it was indeed a structured settlement, but it, it was a tragic case because the gal lived 40 years and never knew she was alive. Tell, tell us about your experiences with the polygraph, George Edgerly, and some of those events. Well, George Edgerly was that first capital case I was called in because in the military I was not an examiner but I had made great use of the polygraph and learned a lot about it. Most lawyers were not interested in it so when it came to a rogue polygraph examiner giving testimony in a capital case that might have caused it to turn the wrong way with the chief defense counsel totally ignorant of the polygraph and in the hospital. The defense team was a little bit desperate. They only came up with two people that were competent to cross-examine a polygraph examiner, and the other one from Alabama had just been nominated to the bench and therefore was ineligible. So you could say I became a criminal lawyer trying capital cases right out of law school by default. Thrown right into the fire and you made it through. Now, as a result of your experience in the military, you got involved in some high-profile court-martials as a civilian lawyer, particularly, I think, Ernest Medina. Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about that case. Well, I think that could easily be described as, in my experience, the nastiest, most disgusting case in the world, and probably uh, in your experience and the rest of my colleagues. This was a case where people in the United States Army, including a squadron leader, a lieutenant, machine gun women, babies, children, and elderly in ditches and killed over a hundred people whose names will never be known because the case was covered up for two years. The shooter was convicted. His uh, Enlisted colleagues who also did the shooting were not charged, and my client, Captain Medina, was not present, but was tried on the ground that a captain 
uh, is liable and should go down with the ship. On the flip side of that, despite the disgusting circumstances, I have never in one trial seen all the lawyers and the judge and the jury and the witnesses behave better in my life. Wow. So what, to, what's the difference when you have a jury of military personnel versus jury of civilians? Well, the easy difference is if you didn't do it, that's a good place to be. And if you did, you're probably going to get convicted. They're all college educated. Uh, in this case, they were all helicopter pilots. So they knew what it was like to take fire and to be in the middle of an ugly war where everybody thought everybody had a little worth. And they understood well enough to literally reach a verdict after six weeks in eight minutes. I needed two of five votes. I got all five because the case was pretty clear. Medina simply didn't know anything until it was all over. All right, we got a little more time. I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the Patty Hearst trial. I, growing up, I remember reading about the SLA and the kidnapping and subsequent events. Give, give our listeners an overview of that case, what it was like trying a high-profile case like that. Well, it was not only high-profile, Brian. It was impossible. It's the worst case I ever accepted. I did it at the personal behest of Randy Hearst, her father, who hired me to extricate her from a first-degree murder case to which she had no defense whatsoever. And I would not be able to mention that even to you and certainly to your listeners were it not the fact that after she was released, she wrote a book admitting to her participation. But we did get her out of that case. There were about 22 other cases where we just walked on eggs till a few broke. She did little time. Actually, she shouldn't have been convicted anything in my view, but in the circumstances, she didn't get beat up too badly. All right, let's, let's now talk about one of the famous moments of cross-examination, the O.J. Simpson trial, Officer Furman, Detective Furman, I guess it was. Let, let me set that up for our listeners. There was a big issue. Why don't you tell us, what, what, had you, what did you know going into the cross-examination Eventually, you were corroborated on what you believed. How did that happen? Well, <clears throat> by good luck, in answer to the second part of your question, we knew right from the outset that this was a vastly overblown case, which had only one element. How did the glove that matched the one found at the scene and certainly was worn by the killer, how did that get in an alley beside O.J.'s house. Did Simpson put it there? He couldn't have, there wasn't time. Did someone else put it there, a killer? For what reason? Did Furman drop it there in order to be um, retained in the case? He'd been fired as a detective, so he thought he might stay on as a witness. The book I am working on is called A Case About a Glove, the only witness that really had critical importance in the case was Mark Furman. My job was to show that he was a liar. And I think at the end of the day, his um, plea of guilty to perjury would kind of 
proved that. that but how did you know? There. So you were cross-examining him. You don't have at the time the impeachment, but you have the suspicion. But you masterfully put him in that box and nailed it shut by asking him, and I think the question was, I want to put it to you, Marine to Marine, did you ever in your life say this to anyone? Something like that. How did you know that something was going to come up and how did you know to pin him down like that? Well, first of all, I had a number of witnesses that said he used the word chronically. Second, he had filed a lawsuit, which Judge Ito kept out of evidence, but I was able to get my hands on where he asked to be pensioned out early because he was so uncontrollably prejudiced against black people. And that word was part of his lexicon. And after I got him to deny several times that he had used the word within 10 years, he, his testimony was interrupted. And on North Carolina, unbeknownst to anyone, there popped up a series of tapes. So the witness who destroyed Mark Furman was not the lawyer in this case. It was Mark Furman. His voice were you, were you was allowed to ever play the tapes to impeach Furman? We played them in public. The jury only heard a couple of fairly innocuous ones. I well, thought did they directly John impeach him using the word? What's that? Did it directly impeach him using the N-word? Uh, about 60 different times he used it, and in a very vicious way, such as the best thing to do with those people would be to put them in one pile and burn them. And that was, was that played to the jury? That was not played to the jury because the judge kept it out. I thought Johnny Cochran was going to shoot him as he sat at the bench. Well, let's talk about that. I mean, you've been in a lot of trials where judges made bad rulings that you thought were the worst you'd heard. How do you deal with that? Uh, you grit your teeth and pretend that it's going to be overturned on appeal. You and I know that many errors of a serious nature, one way or another, get by the appellate machinery. So, Lee, for young people want to be a trial lawyer, what advice would you have for them? You need to look in the mirror and see if you have these three ingredients, and without any of them, you really ought to consider another specialty. The first is confidence. If you're in any way intimidated uh, by the thought of standing alone in front of a jury and speaking confidently with good English, persuasively, don't do it. If you don't have good discipline, you're ready to do the immense preparation that goes into any trial of consequence, don't do it. And if you don't have the discipline to stay up to the candles of burning out because you've got to finish the job of getting ready, then maybe you should do wills and trusts. So it's not for everybody, is it? No, it isn't. And as you know, and our colleagues know from so many years, the phrase, I can't define one, but I know one when I see one is particularly appropriate. We got a couple minutes. What other than we talked about, uh, Detective Furman, give us some of your best trial stories. Well, 
some of them have never been heard of, uh, and some of them didn't involve trials. My most intriguing cases involved spooks, that is people that worked for the CIA. CIA thought they defended, tried to punish them, but the CIA can never afford due process. And so one way or another, I got all three of them to go away, but they were serious cases about assassinations and uh, they were tricky to handle. If I hadn't been a member of the intelligence community for a short time, I might not have seen my way through the fog. All right, Lee, we can do this again. We got plenty more to talk about. We ran out of town now. I really appreciate you spending the time with our listeners here today and can't wait to do it again. Thank you so much for all you've done. Well, I appreciate having a friend named Brian Panish. Thanks, Lee. Take care, buddy.